We have also sound houses where we practice and demonstrate all sounds in their generation. We have harmony which we love not of greater sound and lesser styles of sounds. We have lost instruments of music likewise to yield the melody, some sweeter than any you have with ballads and rings of the day to be sweet. We make diverse trappings and ornaments of sounds, which in their original are inspired. Everything, including construction, which you sent me, not everything, but a lot of it is extremely politically oriented. Your writings are all very, um, uh, all have to do very much with politics and left, you know, left-leaning politics. I'm wondering where that came from. Like, why? I mean, this is a huge, broad question. Mm. about Well, like, your it, the simple views, answer but, yeah. is it came from uh, living under the Thatcher administration yeah, in yeah, the 1980s. I, yeah, exa- yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, and that, that much I could guess. You yeah, know, yeah, and, and you know, watch, watching the, the beginning of the, um, of the dismantling of, of that society, which is still going on now. And, you know, if I'd been in the U.S., I would have said the same thing about Reagan. And if I'd been somewhere else, then I would have said the same thing then. Because um, what, what happens at a certain point which I, I guess begins around the end of the 1970s or so, is, is a political realignment which has resulted by now in the, the situation where vast amounts of power is concentrated in um, completely unelected bodies, multinational corporations, yeah. in other words, who, who are basically calling the shots in all the most important areas of political activity in the world. And I'm... I'm not. I'm not interested in politics as such. It's not that it's an interest of mine, and there, therefore it finds its way into the work that I do. It's more like, it's more like you look around yourself and and you can't help but see these things going on. And and I think it's 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 important to have to have some standpoint because, well, I don't I don't think that um, making music should be a substitute for political activity in uh, in other areas. 
although it's it's easy for me to say that given that I don't really have very much political activity in other areas at this point, although I have done in the past. Yeah, and, you did. You were part, yeah. I have done in the past and maybe I will do in the future as well. But at the moment, you know, the the opportunity that I have to respond to, to the situation um, is generally tied up with, uh, with my activity as a musician. And it goes back also to, to what I was saying before about, about artistic activity being authentic to its own time and place. And there are two sides to this, as far as I'm concerned, um, which are summed up in, in, this, um, in the phrase resistance and vision which I suppose is behind a lot of the things that I've been talking about here in the, in the um, past little while, is that firstly, there is the matter of being aware of what there is out there that needs to be resisted. But secondly, I think to have, and in, inseparably from that, to have some kind of vision as to how things could be different. I'm not interested in a music of protest, for example. And I think the, the, the work that I do is, is very explicitly not a music of protest, although it has that dimension to it. But it also has the dimension of, um, well, what kind of, what kind of world would you like to live in? To give a silly example, you know, what we've just been talking about in terms of symphony orchestras, I would like to live in a world where symphony orchestras are not motivated by the need to, to play it safe with their audiences, with their sponsors, and, and so on, but, but which could take some joy in, in, in going outside that, that whole world of stress and worrying about how many people are in the audience and, and what are the paymasters going to think and, and all of that kind of thing. So, you know, the, the very act of, of writing in, in the way that I'm doing is quite explicitly... A, Firstly, an act of resistance against that institution, but but also imagining what it would be able to do, what it could do if um, if it wasn't subject to all of those restrictions. Yeah, and then but then the answer that you came to seemed to have been pretty pragmatic. I mean, in the example well, in of what, the orchestral piece that you gave me, that the violin gave came over to you. Um, the the violin player came over to you and said, "All of these things are make it more difficult," and. Uh, and this is why, and then you came up with a solution, or you're coming up, or you're thinking of a solution that would best fit someone with the mentality of something that you are resisting. Well, I didn't actually say that, though. I mean, I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to be pro- pragmatic to that extent. I mean, this this question of mentality. <clears throat> I think we need to distinguish the human dimension from the institutional dimension here because, you know, people who play in orchestras, there's nothing particularly, what can I say? I mean, they're just people like everybody else, you know, they're not, they're not monsters. Um, of course nor, not, but they're conditioned, nor, they're conditioned by the mentality nor, of institutional nor, practice. Nor are they, nor are they um, individually stunted by the, um, by the situation that they have to work in. It may seem that way, of course. I suppose what I'm talking about is trying trying to find a way to engage with those aspects of of musicianship among for example orchestral musicians which don't have to do with the institutional conditioning. Now, what is the answer to that? I have no idea, you know. It's it, I've got as far as framing that that question. Um how do you engage with with the fact that everybody who's sitting there in the orchestra at a certain point, has put an enormous amount of 
time and effort and love, you can call it, into, um, into learning their instrument, into mastering their instrument and being able to be fluent with that instrument, whatever it is. And then they get landed in a situation where, well, let's just say for, for the moment, the, the more engaged aspects of, of that, um, that relationship that they have to music are not given any importance. And, you know, if you talk to, to members of an orchestra, then not many of them are, are going to be interested in discussing the music that they just played in an orchestral concert. Some of them are, of course. There are always some people who, who are... Yeah, the um, percussionist for, in for the one, back. <laughs> for one reason or other, able to retain something of, of, of what put them in there in the first place. But, but for a lot of other people, it becomes something like an office job. And I don't know how... Um, whether it's possible to to try and um, to bring life to that kind of engagement without changing the institution completely, which you know an individual is not going to be in a in in a position to do, but the attempt in itself, insofar as that can be heard in the resulting music, I think is uh, is something which is which is already worthwhile. I suppose the pragmatic side of this is that I want to create something which even under these circumstances, will express enough of itself to be meaningful. But at the same time, perhaps pointing at the potential beyond it to be something on a different kind of level. I don't know to what extent that makes itself audible to other people, but a lot of the time I think I've thought with, with, uh, with the orchestral music that I've written that if we'd had one more rehearsal, we could have sorted this and this and this and this and this out. But maybe that's not true, you know. Maybe then other problems would have would have uh, arisen, and then it becomes somewhat asymptotic, you know. That that the more things you can imagine another rehearsal would put right, the more things come in. And you think yes, but if we could only get that right now, and then eventually, yes, you're not talking about one more rehearsal. You're talking about twenty more rehearsals. Yeah. I would love to hear what the music would sound like under those circumstances, if it were to become as familiar to the musicians as as playing uh, Brahms or at least Stravinsky, you know. And I think that that is one of the uh, the barriers, if you like, that exists between this music and, and the audiences, that it's never played well enough, you know. With symphony orchestras, but a Legion Ensemble was... Yeah, that, well, well, I'm talking about orchestras now, and, and that's that's a reason for um, for thinking that maybe the... It's just time to abandon ship as far as the symphony orchestra is concerned and, and, and just not worry about it anymore. And I suppose I do that to a certain extent because I'm not going to sit down and write a piece for symphony orchestra unless somebody commissions me to do so. And then, yeah. then I think, what a wonderful opportunity and, um, and off I go. You know. but, uh, but if it doesn't happen, then I was going to say it's not as if I, I have so many unfulfilled urges in that in that direction, but actually I do. But I can keep them under control for the most part. Yeah. So do you? So when you? So when you write for an ensemble that you're? Let's just say illusion ensemble, right? So when you write for them, do you not have to worry so much about the kind of uh, pragmatic application? When you were writing for uh, an orchestral piece, you you're said saying that, that there's course, not there's not so much to resist against in the institution. There's not itself. so much to resist against, or uh, but like your goal for writing for a symphony orchestra would be to create something that can also point to another the possibility of another world. Hmm. And uh, the trick is to not actually make a thing that's in that other world, but can that can go. Oh, I see. They can point to it. Yeah. Uh, when you're writing for an ensemble that you've been working with for a while. 
is it easier to point to it? Are you able to actually get there? Is it, you know, how much of your well, ideal I'm, universe mm. is able to be communicated when you're, you know, Well, I don't think people? it's possible to get there under any circumstances. Okay, yeah, but... Um, but I think it can certainly be more explicitly pointed at, yes. Because you're not, you're not having to deal with um, the, the institution in itself as a kind of microcosm of, of the way that, that our present society works because the, there is something a little bit more idealistic about it. So, so we're already, already a few steps in that direction. How do like. they get there, though? How do they, it's weird that they're not subject to that, you know, that mental thinking. How do they get to that space? I guess the, I guess well, the way... Well, by I, not being salaried members of an ensemble, I suppose. Yeah. And thinking of it as, um, as something that, that they do because it's something they want and need to do rather than something that pays their rent, you know. Because when the ensemble started off back in the 80s, I think I'm correct in saying that the majority of the players at that time had regular orchestral jobs alongside their, uh, their activity with the ensemble. So that meant that they could be a lot more idealistic about the way that the ensemble works than if they had to rely on it for their, um, for their living, you know, as is the case with very many of the big... Um, contemporary music ensembles like the London Sinfonietta or Musikfabrik and so on, they basically function like orchestras in that regard. Um, so another thing that's, that's always been the case with, with Elysian is that a lot of value has been placed on individual contact and individual collaboration between composers and performers. So not just sitting in front of, of the ensemble in a rehearsal where everybody is, is together, but, but seeing, seeing it in terms of not not just of a collective, but of a, as a group of individuals as well. So, um, if I'm working with with the ensemble, I'm I'm thinking in terms not not just of the whatever the instrumentation happens to be, but also of the individuals who are who are performing that music. And in the score of Dark Matter, for instance, you see the performers' names at the beginning of the staves. Um, as much as you see the instruments that they're, they're playing. And I thought that in, in that particular case, well, I don't, don't know whether I've done that in any of the other pieces, but, it, but there was, there was a, some kind of statement to be made there that you're not just writing for a particular instrument, but you're writing for a particular performer. And then, of course, the obvious question comes along, well, what if somebody else plays that part subsequently? Um, Their name has to be Carl. Well, <laughs> yeah, <it's clarinet. laughs> they, they have to change their name. Yeah. Um, but if you think, if, if you think of, um, you know, go, going back to, uh, to the classics, you know, the um, solo concertos of the 19th century, they were always written for either the composer himself to play or for somebody that the composer had very close contact with. So you don't feel that you have to turn yourself into um, those people um, when a soloist comes along to play that music now. But I think, again, this is to do with authenticity. The fact that those, those pieces were originally written with particular individuals in mind and, and out of a particular relationship between composer and, a, and performer, it means the opposite of closing off access to, to that music for other performers who, who, who might come along. Because I don't know how to put this exactly, but that sense of the, the music at the compositional stage belonging to a particular individual in itself brings brings about a, a certain sense perhaps of of authenticity which other performers coming to the the music when it already exists will take as their starting point 
that the fact that it's, the it's person who originally played it, it was made for them personally, and then they, they, they then know that, and then they have to feel like they have to add them well, themselves all, all, to it. And that's not quite what I'm saying. I'm having difficulty articulating it, in fact. But the, the fact that it was written for somebody in particular, okay, no matter who that was. Instead of, you know, violin player X, whatever, who instead cares, of, symphony orchestra. Yeah, instead yeah. of just being, uh, treating the instrument as a machine for creating a sequence of sounds, you know. Yeah. Um, so the fact that, that it has a physical, emotional relationship with a performer or with a group of performers gives it, perhaps the word is a certain internal consistency, which, um, which other performers are then able to access for themselves. And... Taking an extreme example, you know, um, since Dark Matter has been mentioned, the contrabass clarinet solo interference, which also has a vocal part with an extremely wide um, pitch range, and the um, the player is also asked to um, play a pedaled bass drum along with the, the performance. All of the techniques that, that are used in that piece were, were things that I collaborated with, uh, with Carl Rosman on. And... A lot of the time when, when we were working together, the ideas were going in both directions, you know. And, and some of the ideas, of course, were, were coming from Carl himself, who said, did you know I could do this as well? So, so it would, uh, the piece would then turn out to be very closely tailored to his capabilities as a player and as a singer, for that matter. And when it was completed, I thought to myself, well, this is the last composition of mine which is ever going to be taken up by anybody else but... Um, I think up until now four other players have, have performed it, which is more than is the case with, uh, with some of my other solo pieces, which would seem to be more accessible to, uh, to performers other than, other than the ones they were originally written for. I wonder why that is. I well, maybe, a, I wonder if it's a reputation thing. Well, like, oh my God, there's this solo clarinet piece that's like impossible and like this really well-known composer wrote, you know, did it. And then it's re- for this really well-known virtuoso clarinet player and... Like almost through not like legend, but um, uh, uh, reputation, it becomes something formidable that people have to tackle. It's, yeah, like uh, like climbing the next mountain and things like that. You mean? Well, maybe I would think that there's another side to it as well. I mean, I'm not there's subtracting things. quality hmm. either. No, 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 I'm no, just no, saying. No. I'm, no, I'm, but, I'm just I, saying. But there may be there may be an element of that, but I can't I can't really bear that in in mind myself. But I think it's also that, again, because there, there was this um, close relationship between player and instrument to begin with, that meant that the music was able to explore areas that perhaps had not been explored in the repertoire for that instrument before, but at the same time with the knowledge that um, it wasn't just, you know, um, writing a pitch an octave higher than the instrument can actually play, but everything in the piece is realizable by at least one person yeah so um it's it's like going back in history to whenever it was in the 1950s with the first person who who ran a mile in four minutes which was um i suppose thought to be an impossible thing to do and now it's not that difficult a thing to do for trained athletes of course i mean i could never do it but so each piece becomes to a certain extent a, a, a barrier well not a barrier but 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 it establishes new limits or it establishes a new threshold um, that's perhaps the best word for it. It establishes a new threshold, which then creates something to be stepped over and, and then to, to enter something. And then that becomes, that. that becomes a standard. 
and then and then we can take for the which ne- everybody then we yeah. can take the next step yeah know? i'm not i'm not deliberately trying to create something that that is impossible so that i think that's a kind of short-sighted thing to do you know if you create something is that's impossible and becomes possible at a certain point then part of its original raison d'etre is is lost you know but i'm not i'm not interested in creating something that's impossible but in pushing that envelope and and trying to reconceive reconfigure um an instrument and its relationship to the performer and for that to be deeply integrated with what the poetic identity of the music is so that all those things become inseparable and you can never tell whether you're really going to succeed with that i suppose it's intractable
I wanted to ask you why you do pieces in such large scale forms, hugely ambitious uh, pieces as far as time and resources go, um, and also again connected to very you know you know very strong political beliefs. Well, I suppose um, one way of answering that question is to go right back to the beginning again and to say that one of the things that that attracted me so much about the contemporary composition I was listening to when I was growing up was the idea of being completely lost. So this, this goes back to being another way of answering your question about, uh, about decoding the, the syntax of the music and, and of that being only one factor which, which played a role in, in becoming involved in that music. And an, another factor was indeed to not understand what was going on. And so trying to grasp hold of that idea and to make it expressible, long durations became more and more necessary or, or appropriate, let's say. And one, one aspect of that is in, in live performance, to make something which occupies an entire concert program rather than being mixed with, with something else so that you don't actually have to extract yourself from that world at any point, but you can inhabit it for, for a certain amount of time. So... As time has gone on, those works have gradually extended themselves and, until we get to something like construction or um, a more recent piece, which is from, from last year, the piece for cello and electronics called Lifeform, which itself is almost an hour long and only involves one performer. That has a lot to do with the idea of um, treating um, a musical composition as a little universe in itself, something which occupies the whole field of vision, so to speak. So I think that's that's possibly the the main reason. It's to do with occupying the field of vision. You mean the listener's field of vision? I mean the listener's. As, like, as, as, as an experience. Yes. That you can't, it has to be a very long duration. So for the sake of taking up somebody's evening, so you kind of, and in order to do that, you have to kind of like push out anybody else's vision and like, this is what I'm thinking. Well, not that so much. Sound, that, that sounded in a, not is that sounded a lot worse than I meant it to sound. <laughs> not so much pushing other people's uh, vision out. But another way of looking at it is that, as I said before, mm -hmm. one, of, one of the things that keeps me going is the idea of trying constantly to, to expand the potential of what I'm doing. And so in a way, what I'm doing is not expanding the durations uh, not just expanding the durations but but expanding the range of durations so um, the formal units that something like um, construction is made out of you can see them on on the large scale of two hours you can see these different um, threads which weave their way through it but you can also experience it on a much smaller time scale so that the the shortest section which I think is wound five is only about thirty seconds long. So, so there there is a huge discrepancy between um, longer and shorter formal elements in the piece, and that's something which you can only work on when you have that kind of duration to work with. The perception of those those formal elements and those moments also depends um, to a great extent on their placing within an overall form. What is what has taken place previously? You hear. A particular moment in a different way if it comes at the beginning than if it comes an hour and a half after the beginning. And I've always been um, very interested in, in this regard in the music of Morton Feldman and in particular the way that it 
articulates these um, fairly extended um, timescales in his music of the 1980s. And I suppose one, one question, one way of putting the question I ask myself is, is it possible to create a, a different kind of experience of those long durations by, well, by using the long durations, but by using um, completely different material to articulate them and not material, which, as in Feldman's case, tends to rotate around itself a lot and, and any transformations that take place are, in general, taking place rather slowly. I think the so kind the, of attention your music demands is much more different than a Feldman, a Feldman piece. And also the material is much more well, virtuosic. Well, is it? I, this, is, this is another question which is, which is maybe worth, well, well, worth when, asking when oneself. You're on, when, when you're on stage it. and you're watching, uh, um, I'm thinking at the very beginning of uh, construction, there's like these uh, sacks, uh, slaps, these tongue slaps articulated with, the, again, getting back to the idea of unison, I think, with these... Um, um, harmonics happening in the string sections, and I think those are they are they aligned in that? I can't. No, I, 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 but I think they're the taking strings, place at different speeds. But, yeah, yeah, but related. But speeds. I remember the slaps were in unison, and mm -hmm. wa you know, watching something that frantic and at the same time very very scrutable. That the fact that everybody's coming in on the unison gives somebody a different type of attention they're paying that 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 they're giving the music. Because they realize something very difficult and delicate and careful is happening. Hmm. A Feldman piece, the virtuosity is not as such that people are on the edge of their seats. You, you think? Know. Because I, I, I saw a performance a couple of weeks ago of patterns in a chromatic field. And actually the virtuosity of it was something that, um, that did occur to me quite regularly during, um, during the piece. Like, how is it possible to keep these sequences of artificial harmonics in tune with the piano to the extent that, uh, that the cellist was, yeah. was doing so. Um, it, it's, a, it's a different kind of virtuosity, obviously, but, um, but I think that probably my interest in extended timescales is not completely unconnected with my experience of Feldman's music. And there are, as you say, very obvious differences. But something that also interests me is, is wondering whether there are underneath it all any similarities as well except that in a Feldman piece of course a small change takes on the uh, expressive expressive significance of something that would have to be a much larger change yeah in yeah. in a music a small which change is, in Feldman is massive and yours has yours yeah. has sections of very but, but differentiated each, sounds but in each case you need to get you need to become accustomed to a certain a certain rate of change and a certain kind of change um, which then colors your your expectations of of where the music can go from whatever point it is you've reached Thank you. 
it almost struck me and maybe it's because I was like reading into it too much, but like just reading about it and what you were saying about it and the fact that it had this big length, it almost struck me as a political thesis somehow. It's not intended to be uh, didactic in that sort of way. I mean, I, I wouldn't like to think of the work that I do as, as lecturing its audience because I don't, I don't think in the end that it, it comes up with any... I don't think ready-made solutions that that you can take away with you at the end. Yeah, and I don't think I don't think the audible result is that. Mm. But when I read the program notes for it, and also, oh oh, man, it was it was a long time ago we were supposed to do this interview, so I can't. uh, uh, The uh, sculpture that it was based on Mm. uh, that never got like that never got finished. Then it comes across more as something that way. But I think the audible result is very much a um, a non-specific. Um, non-specific, but like well, if uh, I'm yeah. if I'm writing about the music, then um, I think it might be interesting to to say something about where it comes from, to say something about what it is a response to, just um, as a departure <clears throat> point for yourself. Well, that that that's where it begins, but also I think that um, it might be interesting or helpful for listeners also to know something about that. I don't think they need to, but. This whole idea of, of Tatlin's monument to the Third International and, and the fact that it was this massive, unbuildable monument, which exists now in, in the form of a kind of virtual fly-through, which you can, which you can see on the internet. I mean, there's, there's a lot one can read into a phenomenon like that. Yeah. So one of the many things that that composition ended up being was a response to thinking about that phenomenon. The, the response to an event or a phenomenon or an idea does not necessarily need to contain an explicit reference to that idea within itself. But at the same time, it might, it might help in some cases to appreciate what, what the response was originally to in order to appreciate the music in a different way. But do you think in order that, to widen one's appreciation okay, of the but, music. But do you think that it might actually do the... For me, and maybe this was my fault, but it was the opposite, where you gave uh, you gave the departure point, and then now I realize I was reading into it too much. Well, it's not for, it, it's not for me to say yeah. whether reading into it too much, whether somebody is reading into it too much or not, because I'm trying to with, with these large scale musical projects, I'm trying to very often make some kind of connection between things which might not be thought to be connected with one another, or at least. I'm making explicit the the connections that I make to them or between them, but I'm not saying that that's that's the only way of of looking at it. And to a great extent, I'm trying to throw out a, a multiplicity of possibilities for for thinking about the music rather than um, rather than saying, well, you can you can read this into it, but no more. Yeah, but I think um, the music. Has some people that. might and not I, read anything into it at all. Yeah, you know? I I I think. It's diff- it's difficult because when you when you make a statement in the onsen, I think people are conditioned by that immediately, and then are only capable. Maybe this is my problem, or only capable of seeing it through that prism. Hmm. And if you just kind of like back off and say very little, or maybe give a disclaimer, then people will be more open to you know saying like, "Oh, this is kind of like you know Feldman deals with time like this too," you know. Well, I don't know. I don't know how to approach something like that, really, because my preference as a listener, if if I'm if I'm at a concert listening to 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 a sequence of uh, of pieces, my tendency is to want to read the program note 
right after I've heard the piece rather than before and, and rather than during, uh, rather than not at all. But it seems to me that the different people have very different preferences as far as things like that are concerned. I suppose if I'm writing something, you know, like like the essay about uh, about construction, what I'm interested in putting there is those things which I would find interesting to um, to read about the music if if I were if I were experiencing it. So you know, there's not there's no um, analysis of the the compositional systems or anything like that, or at least very little that I can remember, because that generally that doesn't interest me as a as a reader so much. I don't want that kind of thing to be thought of as necessary for a listener to understand. Yeah. Um, because I don't want listeners to, to confuse what I think the music is doing with how I made it. Those two concepts obviously have, they're interconnected, but they're not the same thing. Very often there's, there's a confusion between those two things such that a composer will describe how he or she wrote a piece of music and um, use that as a substitute for saying something about what the music does. About what the music does. And sometimes, you know, I'm called upon to, to write a, a program note for a piece, and I think, well, I don't actually have anything to say about it at this stage. And so in, in that case, the program note turns into a couple of lines that deal with facts and circumstances, and then I leave it at that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so, you know, these are the parameters I put so into some, the system to make, you know, blah, 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 blah. So blah, sometimes... Right? Sometimes I have more to say than others. And in, in the case of a big project like construction, there, there, is, there is quite a lot to say, I suppose. But whether people find that um, a help or a hindrance to um, coming to terms with the music for themselves, I guess I can't influence that, or I'm, I'm not really interested in influencing it. I'm just putting the material out there and, and, and seeing what people think. Could you get a read on it, though? Because it was premiered, and then I'm assuming that people... Uh, went up to you and said, this was my experience, you know. And of course, everybody's diplomatic. Nobody's going to be like, oh, God, what are you doing? But, you know, people are going <laughs> to... Well, you know, there, there, were, there were some not very complimentary comments about, uh, about the fact that the piece was over two hours long, you know. I mean, some people found that hard to deal with, full stop. And, uh, well, it's, it's very difficult to know what the um, gentlemen of the press had to think about that performance because they completely ignored it. Um, so you mean they didn't go to the performance, or they didn't? I, they I don't. Went and they didn't write about. I it. don't know whether they went to the performance or not, but certainly there were there were no reviews in any of the uh, the British newspapers, which may have have had something to do with what I had to say about newspaper journalists two years previously at the same festival. Wait, what did you say about them? <clears throat> well, um, that they're awful. Well, that they're very lazy in their thinking a lot of the time. As journalists are supposed not to do, they, they don't let the facts get in the, the way of a good story. You know, if they have something to say that they can dress up in, uh, in a few carefully chosen flowery adverbs, then it doesn't really matter whether that really refers to the music that they were listening to or not. So um, back at, at the time when uh, a number of performances of my work took place in, in the same festival at Huddersfield um, in 2009, there were some absolutely atrociously intellectually lazy things that, that that appeared in the UK newspapers. And I thought, well, I guess I have nothing to lose by just saying something about this. So, I, Wait, where, In what form did you say it in? Well, um, I wrote to the editors of the newspapers concerned. Of course, those letters weren't published. But I also um, I also reproduced these letters in, uh, in a couple of different internet forums so that anybody who wanted to read them could do so. <laughs> 
And the result was that, that the next time I went back to the Huddersfield Festival, my, my contribution was totally ignored. Wow. So I suppose that's the way they have of, uh, of getting their own back. Um, anyway, that, I, that's not strictly relevant to what we're saying. We're talking about reactions. Um, well, yeah, I mean, reactions do, they certainly play a part in the way that I would, that I would write an essay like the one I did about construction. Because if somebody says, well, I wasn't, I found this difficult to deal with or, or I, um, I found this hard to understand, then I would be taking a certain amount of pains to, to think, um, well, if that person found this hard to understand, then maybe I should explain it as, as well as I can. Um, so to respond to negative comments in, in the sense of, of, of difficulties people might have had with it, or to explain, you know, why is this piece two hours long, um, which I've just tried to do. But yeah, I mean, I think in 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 general, I'm I'm quite happy to to be responsive to what people have to say about the music. Um, that's not going to change the music in any way because I feel that once it's done, it's out of my hands to a certain extent. I may be critical of it myself too. Would you ever learn and make an adjustment? Okay, so once it's done, it's out of your hands. But there's always the next thing. Mm-hmm. Would you ever learn and make an adjustment based on? Based on what somebody else has said. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, you know, there's the... In- well, you know, sometimes there are people in the world who will say things that um, that really express something that you thought of yourself, but you didn't really articulate it in those terms, or, or you maybe denied it to yourself. Um, and in those cases, um, yeah, I guess if, if somebody explicitly expresses something that were, was in your mind in the form of some vague doubt, then that can certainly um, have an effect. I don't make it in order, in order for it to be perfect, and I don't make it in order to please everybody. But, mm. um, but I, would, I would hope that if, if I do make something which, which is authentic to the way I experience things and to the way, the way I think and the way I would like and the way I imagine things, if that if that creates some some resonance, then it, then it makes it it makes it worth doing. I don't think it's worth doing just for myself. And also, you know, I'm not particularly interested in uh, in ingratiating myself. But I'm not. I'm also not interested in in antagonizing audiences. You know, if I were a spiritually inclined person, which I'm not, I would say that well, this this is the way it came to me, and that's the way it is. You know, and um, I don't put a mystical interpretation on that but at the same time in a certain sense it's not entirely up to my conscious judgment why the music ends up as it does but do you ever analyze why it's coming to you that way i guess the composition itself is is the analysis because i think you know the the whole of my creative work is is really or one way of looking at it is to say that it's it's a very long-lasting and open-ended, ongoing investigation into um, what is the nature of the imagination. And, uh, you know, I may I may eventually come to the conclusion that it's all kind of fed into my head by God or something like oh, that. Really? <laughs> but I don't think so. I think that's very unlikely. 20 years um, from now, I'll see but, you again in your... <laughs> But I'm not. Uh, I'm not closing my mind to any possibilities. You know. No, I mean I'm being a bit facetious there. But I don't think there are and there are finally any um, any conclusions to be made about that. But somehow 
carrying on the investigation has, has a compulsion about it, which in my case motivates creating music in, and in the case of, of other people would motivate something else. Great. Well, you know, we've been talking for a couple hours uh, and I think that's a good place to leave it. Thank you for doing this. Thank you.